All right, well, Taylor's uh, children's sermon is a hard act to follow. When I first came to Incarnation, my first thought was, man, their children's sermons are better than my uh, normal sermons. Um, so my clergy mentor always started this sermons with a joke, so I'm going um, to continue that tradition, so bear with me. So a man climbs a mountain, and he has a chance to speak to God, and he says, God, can I ask you a couple questions? And God says, yes. He says, God, how long is a second to you? And God answered, a second to me is like 10,000 years to you. The man goes, okay. He goes, well, how much is a penny to you, God? And God says, one of my pennies is worth 10,000 gold coins to you. The man, getting a little bit of courage, goes, well, God, can I have a penny? And God answered, God answered, sure, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. What does that have to do with my sermon today? Absolutely nothing. But it's a, it's a favorite of mine, and I know my family's groaning, so I just had to go with it. So, yeah. Hopefully you all forgive me for that one indulgence. So when I first found out I was going to preach during Advent, the first thing I thought was, man, I hope I get to preach on John the Baptist. So imagine my relief when I looked at the schedule and saw my name on the schedule for the third Sunday in Advent. John is just such an intriguing figure, second only to Jesus himself in all of scriptures, in my opinion. And just like Jesus, who he proceeds, John refuses to be put in a box. He doesn't fit our mold for what we might think a religious figure should act like or look like. He isn't exactly nice, either. As beloved of a figure as he is, I don't think we're going to be seeing a scary man dressed in camel hair on the front of a Christmas card saying, you brood of vipers. <laughs> I can't imagine there's a big market for that. But then again, maybe there is. And as much as we love to hear about John the Baptist, I would imagine we would all get very, very nervous if he walked through the church doors this morning, munching on some honey-dipped locusts. But he's just so fascinating. As many of you might know, before coming to Incarnation, I filled in as pastor of the Anglican Church down in Crawfordville after our previous pastor retired. And John the Baptist was, shall we say, a little bit of a mascot for the church. Perhaps his propensity for hanging out by the river in the woods or his rough clothing and persona made him a natural fit for the hardy folk of Wakulla County. <laughs> the church even had a little John the Baptist action figure who would who spent his days in my office until Advent rolled around, and then it was traditional for him to be placed on the Advent calendar, kind of out reef, kind of hanging off like a maniac. <laughs> and when I took over as pastor, I learned my lesson really quick, because I attempted to use that figure in a, as a sermon demonstration, so I hid him in my, up there in my pulpit. And let's just say it didn't go well, as all the church ladies were scouring the office, and a search party went out, and people were very <laughs> upset they could not find their John the Baptist action figure. So... I had to explain his first sermon, his first sermon, but by that point, there was an uproar. So note to self, don't mess with John the Baptist action figure, or you'll face the wrath of your altar guild. He's just a dynamic and magnanimous figure in the biblical story, which begs the question, what can I possibly say about him today, and where do I start? Well, if any of you know me, then you know I'm a big movie buff. Good movies, bad movies, I watch them all. When my wife and I were dating in college, Going to the movies was our thing, and we saw just about every single movie that came out, even the rotten ones. But even the, even the rotten movies sometimes can shed a light on a, something for us on occasion. So as I was attempting to prepare for today's sermon, I found myself watching the 1988 sci-fi horror classic, They Live. And if you've seen it, then you know it isn't exactly a great movie. It's cheesy, overly violent, it's got a ridiculous plot, and it's got all the makings of an 80s cult classic. 
To give you a hit on its pedigree, the main character is played by the esteemed WWF wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> so you know we're dealing with high quality stuff here. But the movie tells the story of a down on his luck everyman who happens to come across a pair of special sunglasses. Sunglasses that for reasons unknown let him see the lies of the world. They reveal that the upper class citizens of the world are actually aliens and they rule the world through subliminal messaging in advertisements, televisions, and magazines. So putting on the sunglasses allows him to see the truth. It reveals the lies of the world around him. And there's a great scene in the movie when he puts the glasses on for the first time. And instead of advertisements, he sees the message, stay asleep, consume. Instead of images and magazines, he just sees more messages. And instead of people, he sees them as the aliens they actually are. This is classic sci-fi cinema here. And as the aliens begin to notice that he's acting different, that he's looking at them, one of them whip messages on her little decoder watch messenger thing and says, I have one who sees here. The glasses reveal the truth of the lies around, of the world around him. The glasses wake him up for the need for the order of the world to be torn down, that the world, the way the world is working is wrong and in need of correction, that the world is broken and needs a savior. Advent, brothers and sisters, is a time of preparation, of anticipation as we await the arrival of the coming king. But this is no ordinary king we are, we are awaiting. We are waiting for the king, the baby king, and his kingdom isn't what the Jews of his time expected, and it isn't what we expect either. And we can't be ready for this, the coming of his kingdom till that, to the new order that is being brought forth in him until we see the lives of the world as it is, to see the brokenness hidden in our everyday lives. We can't anticipate the king until we see that the status quo is rubbish, as John would say. And John the Baptist is our glasses. He prepares us for the coming of King Jesus by revealing the lives of the world around us. We can go so far as to say that John is an outright repudiation of the lives of the world. And by studying him, we too can become one who sees. See our desperate need for a savior, our desperate need for Jesus. And John does this in many ways, but in three distinct ways I'd like to discuss this morning. The manner of his life, his ministry of baptism, and as we heard in our gospel reading today, his recognition of his own time to step down and get out of Jesus' way. So let's start with the manner of his life. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 3, verse 4. I, don't have a pew, I didn't have a pew Bible at the house, so I don't, if anybody has the page number, call it out. Eight oh eight. So Matthew says, John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all the region about the Jordan were going to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? So in this few, short span of verses, Matthew has given us so much information on John. So let's pause there. We live in a world that is obsessed with appearances, fashion, makeup, cosmetic surgery, weight loss drugs. We are bombarded constantly about our need to look better, to dress better, to be better. Actor and author Russell Brand said this during his road to sobriety after someone mocked him for joining the cult of a 12-step program. He said, I don't feel like I've joined a cult, but that I've been liberated from one, the cult that told me that I'm not enough that I need to be famous to, have, to be of value, that I need to have money to live a worthwhile life, that I should affiliate and associate and identify on the basis of color and class, 
that my role in life is to consume, that I was to live in darkness only occasionally lit up by billboards and screens, always framing the smiling face of someone trying to sell me something, sell me phones and food and prejudice, low cost and low values, low frequency thinking. We are in a cult by default. We just can't see it because its boundary lies just beyond our horizons. John's life and dress is a direct rebellion against the cult of the world. And ancient times were no different than our own times. The people of the ancient Middle East knew, just as the people of our time know, that the rich, finely dressed people hold the power. They're the ones who make the world go round. The righteous, well-dressed and well-mannered people. But then John comes in with a stunning, not so. He had no friends in the marketplace with whom he sat and chatted about the day's activities after a long day of preaching. He doesn't intend poker night with the boys on Tuesday to blow off steam, his friends he's known since childhood. And John, instead, John has a singular vision on who he was and what his calling was to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he was laser-focused on that calling. And that means he doesn't have time for fancy clothing, for fancy cars, or a fancy penthouse. He doesn't comp compromise a single thing in his life that would make anyone wonder about his allegiances. No one could point to a cozy two-story home on the beach and say, see, he's just the same as me. He likes the finer things on occasion. He's just a phone-in preacher during the week. Instead, John doesn't even own a house. He lives in the woods. No one can point to a stock portfolio and say, see, he has a good mix of goat and fish stocks and a well-rounded portfolio. He's just like us. He talks a good game, but he has the same financial allegiance as I have. No, he doesn't own a thing other than a scratchy camel jacket. No one could look at John with a silk clothing and soft coat and say, see, he likes a little bit of the bling. He's got style. He's no different from us. Instead, he wore fine clothing made from camel fur and nothing but a belt. No one could look at John and say, see, he says we should repent, but he's going to go out for a nice, fat, juicy steak, maybe some caviar and wine once we're done and no one's looking. No, he ate locusts and wild honey. Not exactly the next Hollywood fad diet, I would imagine. For the sake of the unadulterated message of hope, John renounced everything in his life so that both he and his listeners would have one thing to focus on, the truth of his preaching, the making straight the path. There's not a single chink in his armor for the hooks of the world to plunge into him and grab hold of him and bring into question his total allegiance to God. The lies of this world, the lie of the world is that we can follow God, but make some time for ourselves. Indulge a little, treat yourself as people like to say. And John prepares the way through his manner of life and reveals our need to be laser focused on Christ because of the great theologian once said, there's not one part of our lives, our manner of living, our very being that Jesus, Jesus doesn't reach out to and claim as his. And John's life was preparing us for what it would look like in the kingdom of heaven, where the poor are blessed, where the first are last, where we, we love our enemies and where Jesus gives power to the powerless. And just as counterculture as John's life was, so too was his ministry, so our second focus. We just read from Matthew 3 that he was baptized into the River Jordan, and earlier Matthew says that John came forth preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talk a lot about repentance in church, don't we? It has such baggage, that word, repentance. Writer Kathleen Norris wrote about her return to her childhood faith. She talked a lot about learning a lot of scary words again. She felt bombarded by words such as heresy, repentance, salvation. They all seem vaguely abstract and a little bit threatening. 
I would imagine there's a lot of us out there that feel vaguely threatened by John's call to repent. I know I do. In a lot of ways, we've lost the tough, but in the end, life-giving quality of repentance. We think it means to clean up our act, get it together, stop messing around. And although it does imply readiness, to repent probably primarily means to come to the God who is coming to you. It's a recognition to turn around. You're going the wrong way. Allow yourself to be found by the joyful God who loves you abundantly. Matthew's call, Matthew's call back to Isaiah is a direct link to the time of the Jewish exiles' expectations of a joyful returning to their homeland. And now, John is joyfully announcing the coming of the world's one true king. Both Isaiah 40 and Matthew 3 declare a hopeful message of the returning to the God who is passionately seeking us. But in declaring this hopeful message, John is breaking all the rules, and not just of good hygiene, good diet, and formal attire. His ministry is breaking the religious rules of his days. Everyone, everyone in John's day knew that the important religious stuff happened at the temple, the massive and magnificent stone structure that dominated the scene in Jerusalem. That's where God came down to dwell with his people. That's where the important stuff happened. The temple formed the center point, the nexus of all religious life for all of Israel. And every Jew knew if you wanted to get close to God, if you wanted to be part of the in crowd of religious folks, you went to the temple. And as a good Jew, you definitely didn't need to be baptized. That sort of thing was reserved for the second-class outsider Gentile converts. So imagine their surprise. Imagine the disgust when people heard about the new, this new religious movement. But instead of going to the temple, they were told to go to the desert, out into the wilderness. And instead of finding a well-dressed and smooth-talking priest, they found a hairy, uncouth, insect-eating wild man in the woods telling them they had to go down into the muddy water of the Jordan to be baptized. And this man was telling you, what you've been told is a lie. You're not good enough or righteous enough. Your heritage and your family name won't save you. None of that ever will save you. Sorry, the true king is coming, and everyone needs to be dunked, washed, and cleansed. Everyone must die and be born again. His ministry and message of repentance is so disturbing and so shocking because it confronts the lie we tell ourselves every day that the world tells us that we're good enough, that we're pious enough, that we can say the right words and tithe just enough to get ourselves out of this mess of our own making, that we can live our best life now and still follow Jesus, that we really, he really just wants us to fulfill our desires and be happy. There's no need to change, at least not really. Instead, John's message casts, casts us at the mercy and election of God, that God has the ability to choose when, where, and how he will save us. And that comes in the least expected places and from the least expected people sometimes. John's ministry of repentance can be painful because it is so closely tied to our sins. Matthew 3, 6 says the people were confessing their sins as they were baptized. It can be so painful to admit our sins, to recognize our own self-made, broken relationship with God. And the Bible really only gives us two options to deal with our sins. We can justify it, or we can confess it. The lie the world tells us that we tell ourselves is that we can justify, deny, minimize, or excuse our sins. And that leads to spiritual death, brothers and sisters. But John's ministry, like the ministry of his life, is a stark answer of no to that lie. 
His ministry was a call to confess our sins, repent, to get ready, because someone is coming. The king is coming. So despite the scary connotations of the word repentance, John's ministry is ultimately one of hope. Repentance is a removal of the fences that we've placed ourselves, our blaming and our excusing, so we can prepare ourselves for the arrival of the Emmanuel, the God with us. So we've discussed John's manner of living and his ministry, which brings us to the third topic about John I wanted to talk about today, his ability to step down and move out of the way so Jesus' ministry can begin. I love the interaction from today's gospel reading. If we would flip over to John 3.22 and take a look at it. We have this interesting inter interaction between John and his disciples. It's almost as if John has been this, a bit of a rock star whose star is starting to fade. He's been the hottest ticket in town, and now there's this new guy, Jesus, on scene, and he's baptizing and gathering followers, and John's star is setting fast. And it's no doubt that John's disciples are looking to bail on him and join this new rabbi, this new rabbi named Jesus in his up-and-coming movement. You can hear it in their questioning statement. Rabbi, that guy who was you were talking about, look, he's baptizing. People are leaving for us for him. They might as well have been saying, this guy's stealing your thunder and your disciples. Our movement is starting to shrink. What are we going to do? You can almost feel the concern in their voices. What would John's response be? Anger? Jealousy? Maybe a new ministry strategy? Perhaps he could add some pyrotechnics to draw in a crowd? But no, because John knows this has been his calling the whole time. John answers, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And he goes on to say, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. As he looks across the universe, John the Baptist knows his place in the grand scheme of things. His feet are firmly planted on the ground. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. Talk about perspective. The world would say, no, fight for what's yours. You're number one. Look after yourself. Name it and claim it. Achieve and shoot for the stars. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. So work on taking care of yourself and the blessings will come to you. The lie, the lie of the world would say, this is about you. Take the bull by the horns. Pull your old bull, your boots up by the bull, bootstraps and come on. That can come out right. <laughs> Pull your boots up by their bootstraps, the old American saying, but not John. John recognized his role was to make the straight the path, to prepare the way for the Messiah. That was his task, and it was now complete. He was content with his task and purpose, the task and purpose God had given him. And he reiterates to his disciples that he is not the Christ. Like he's saying, guys, I've been telling you this all the whole time. He's only there to point the way and bear witness to the true Christ. He is the friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom himself. We couldn't imagine a wedding where the best man stood in the center aisle and took away the attention from the groom. And how many horror stories have we heard about someone trying their best to take the attention away from the bride and groom? And it never goes well. In a subtle way, perhaps not so subtle way, we all struggle in our task to be forerunners and friends of the groom and not the groom. Because we are all called to be a bit like John the Baptist, pointing to Christ and preparing the way for him. But it can be so difficult, can it? Each of us wants to be the Messiah, the King, the star of the show. We want to be number one. And if we really admit it, deep down, we want to be God. 
The truth is that every one of us has a hard time putting Jesus' will above our own and ahead of ourselves. We want to waltz into the afterlife singing, I did it my way. And that's what makes John's response today so special, because he doesn't answer in that way. What makes it even more special is that he takes such delight in his role. It's not that he's just not resigning himself saying, I'm just the forerunner, I'm just the messenger. He said, instead, he's full of joy, like the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. John recognized that at best he was number two. We need to be like John. He must increase, but I must decrease, John said. What a powerful statement. When a person gets ordained, there's always specific scriptures assigned for the service. It's my personal opinion that this today's reading should be required reading at every single ordination service. He must increase, but I must in, in decrease. Although I've noted no one from the Anglican communion is knocking down my door for my opinion. <laughs> but I think this is the fundamental scripture for all of ministry, both ordained and non-ordained, perhaps in our very lives as Christians. He must increase, but I must decrease. Every single one of our faults, every single one of our sins, royally boils down to putting ourselves first and not Christ, not God, not our neighbors, not our enemies. Every minister who ever fell to sin, every broken trust was because of a failure to de decrease so that Christ could increase. I try to remember that every time I step into a church because I know I'm guilty of thinking about myself first on so many occasions. I must remind myself daily that I must decrease, that it's not about me, and that's why, as Anglicans, we can take comfort in our liturgy, because it's not about my poor public speaking and mediocre sermons. That's why I love vestments, because it's not, when I put on these, it's not about me, what I look like, the clothes I wear, or my poor sense of fashion. Our liturgy, our liturgy is designed to take as much of our sinful selves out of the equation as possible, so that Christ can be answered, honored and not the person standing at the altar. And this lifestyle of decreasing so Christ can increase should boil over into our interpersonal relationships and our caring for others. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's interesting that in the early church, the most commonly quoted, quoted scripture, their John 3:16, so to speak, was love your enemies. And loving our enemies and our neighbors is allowing ourselves to decrease so they can increase. Our friendships, our citizenships, our marriages, Imagine how those relationships might blossom if we learn to decrease so that others might increase, to let go of our own selfish wants, desires, and needs, to allow our partners to flourish. That's living the John the Baptist life, putting Christ first, and then others, and finally, ourselves. But how do we do it? Because it's just so hard, and there's no answer, easy answer. It's a daily question of requiring dying daily, dying to ourselves and allowing Christ to increase. But this daily dying is learning how to truly live. Each of us is a forerunner. Each of us is called to make straight the path for Christ. We all have a part to play. We're all on stage in the band with Jesus. We participate in his story. We all, all play a tune, but we have to remember he's the main act. We're just the backup singers. In our best moments, we might learn to play in harmony with him rather than distorting the sound by trying to play our own tune to do things our way. On our best days, we find our joy in fading into the background to let him shine. It makes our joy complete because he is the main attraction. So this holiday season, as we await the arrival of the baby king, it's our time to prepare the way and to prepare ourselves. 
and remind ourselves that we must decrease and he must increase. Because the Christian story is for us, exactly because it isn't about us. It's about Jesus. And John is here to lead the way. He's making straight the path. As we spend this Advent season preparing for the coming of Christ, we must first recognize the lives of the world. And John is here to help us. The world would tell us that we have to look our best, meet its standards, and conform. The world would tell us to be pious enough, good enough, that we can earn our own way into heaven, that we don't need all that repentant stuff. And the world would tell us it's all about us. We are the star of the show. We are the focus. But John says, no, all that stuff is a lie. And you're about to find out because the king is coming. King Jesus is coming. John's life and ministry is a signpost pointing us towards what a life lived in Christ will be like. And as Christmas approaches, let's live the John the Baptist lifestyle and follow that signpost, allowing ourselves to fade into the background and allowing Christ to shine through. And that's the great calling to the church. As my old church was our mission statement to proclaim, embody, and extend Christ's kingdom. We do that not by our own strength, our own ingenuity, and, but by pointing to others to Jesus and getting out of the way to walk along beside them because it's not about us. As we use John's life as a signpost, as we begin to contemplate a God who would come to us not in power and glory, but in the manger as a baby, we begin to enter the great mystery of the Christian faith and the good news of Christmas. So my prayer for each of you, and mostly for myself, is that we live the John the Baptist life, that strange life out on the ragged edge that we might learn to decrease so Christ can increase. And when we do that, when we follow John's path towards Christ, may we live lives that cause the people of the world to look at us and just like the movie, whisper, I see one here who sees. Amen. <laughs>